goal of Data Transformers podcast is to accelerate digital transformation by bridging the gap between business outcomes and rapidly advancing technologies. And we aim to bridge this gap by focusing on data. I am Peggy Sai, top 50 women in tech influencer, co-author of the AI book and data governance expert. I'm Ramesh Danta, an entrepreneur, a tech blogger, and AI enthusiast. Hello all, welcome to one more episode of the Data Transformers podcast. Today, Peggy and I are excited to introduce our next guest. His name is Dale Hitt. He's the founder of AV8.AI, video AI business community, and he's also the VP of marketing and business development at iCloud.AI, open AI vision cameras. Hey, Dale, welcome. Thank you, it's great to be here. Welcome, Dave. So Dale, so you got two hats going on. First one is the AVA.AI and the other one is the iCloud. So if you could let us know what you do with both, uh, the, uh, with both ventures. Yeah, so AVA.AI is a business community for entrepreneurs and innovators working with video and trying to use AI to, to bring uh, intelligence into their products and, and visual perception. And then it, with iCloud, iCloud, is a AI camera developer and manufacturer, and uh, they say sell a variety of products uh, with the uh, AI capabilities built in, so edge AI capabilities. And I'm really excited to be here and talk about you know the, the Cambrian explosion of smarter products that are that are going to market with visual AI capabilities, visual perception, enhancing their uh, value to consumers and, and business customers. Um, I'd love to hear more about that, actually. I mean, with video AI, exactly how is AI used in videos for those of you, for those of us not familiar, and what are the you know challenges, I guess, with um, AI in, in videos? Yeah, so there's a lot of interesting uh, markets that are getting traction today. Um, one, of, one of the ones that's uh, fairly common that people may not be that aware of is that the ADAS systems built into the newer cars. So my, my Honda Accord has a, uh, a uh, self-driving capability where it keeps the car between the lines and, and reads the, the street uh, speed limit signs on the side. All it's done with intelligence built into the car, built into the cameras. So that, that's uh, what I'm talking about in visual perception, visual AI. Uh, it's also being used in augmented reality advertising, like you see in in football games, where they render the the ads up up into the image, into the scene, or the the line along the line marker along the the football game. That's all done uh, with computer vision, understanding the context of the the video, and allowing the rendering of those lines built in. So lots of lots of places already has traction, but there's it, it, we're just at the beginning uh, with this new uh, AI neural network technology uh, and machine learning to really uh, take it to the next level. And I think I, I heard a funny story once about a video AI, it was like a, a soccer game or a football game. And um, the umpire's, uh, I guess his shiny head was mistaken for a football or for the ball, right? So- um, Yeah, that, that Peggy, Peggy, you can, you, can, you can go and say it's some shiny head, a bald head, right? So <laughs> no, 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 don't worry about it. I'm not talking about you. <laughs> but yeah, that that uh, 
you know, a, a system that's used to, uh, visual intelligence to track the ball around the field mistook the, the head of the referee for a ball. So that just uh, show, is an example of how these systems can actually fail, which is uh, very relevant to this discussion of uh, where the technology is. Hmm. So actually you left us hanging when you introduced, you said uh, Cambrian technology, right? So, so you got to explain to us, otherwise we'll be thinking, what is it talking about? So yeah, take us a little... Next the level of biological mimicry, you know, 500, 600 million years ago, animals first developed sight. And at that time, there was an explosion uh, of species differentiation as, as they competed, you know, the, the predators got sight and the prey got sight to, to avoid the predators. And they were, they were constantly upping their game on how well they could see so they didn't get eaten so, or, or that they got fed one way or another. But anyway, there's an analogy to that with machines now being able to visually perceive the world that we're seeing a proliferation of different species of smart products using vision to deliver, to, to evolve and, and get better. So, uh, I, I love the metaphor and I, I think it's a good analogy to what's happening in, in the marketplace with visual intelligence. Hmm. Hmm. I mean, so, we, we, I guess we touched upon, upon some challenges in this area, but I guess in terms of, you know, opportunities, like I, I see like on, on television, you know, like these gym equipments that, you know, you, it's literally a mirror, but you're doing exercises with like a thin monitor. Is that another example of, you know, of the space where the trends are now heading towards um, in health and fitness as well? Yeah, absolutely. These new uh, in-home gyms uh, have cameras built into them that, that watch you as you're performing the fitness exercises, and they can coach you on the appropriate uh, pose and you know, posture to do the exercise. They can keep count of your reps. They can look at uh, how fast you're doing them and, and moderate your, your, the level of uh, fatigue that you get um, based on what they're monitoring directly from watching you. So it's, it's really exciting. They're, like you said, they're, they're home fitness equipment that have it. They also have iPhone fitness apps that have this capability already, already built in. Now it's still at the early stage. They can only do simple uh, posture, recognize certain posture variations, but uh, as they go forward, they'll get uh, smarter and smarter and be able to deliver more and more capabilities in the fitness domain. So it's, it's exciting to see. So Dale, one of the things that, uh, you know, we really go a little deep into on this podcast is about the data, right? So any of the AI has got these three phases, right? One is the training phase, right? Uh, and of course, you, you, you're, first is the model development, and then the next one is the training. And then afterwards, the inferencing uh, and towards actually deploying in production. With respect to videos and images, right? There are lots of uh, programs out there people have built like a huge database of images. Uh, one thing that I read is that the more, let's say a cat recognition, the more kinds of cats that you could have in the database, the better your predictability towards, you know, if it's a cat or not. And if you have limited data about a problem, then you're less likely to, you know, have an accurate, more predictable uh, result out of that one. So what are the challenges involved in, in the video um, AI with respect to the data itself? Is it availability of data, or the quality of the data? 
If you could talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, so the current technologies, the convolutional neural network technologies really need to see uh, all variations of a particular uh, subject matter that you're trying to recognize in order to do an effective job. And it's not, not only, you know, having lots of pictures of the same cat, but you have to have it from different angles, different lighting conditions, uh, and, and different uh, environments. Uh, there's a very famous story about uh, in the early data sets, they, they trained a, a bunch of uh, neural network to, to detect differences between a bunch of dogs. And they found out after training it, it, it was recognizing the snow of the pictures around the, the huskies because they were all the pictures with the huskies had snow in the pictures. I was, wasn't actually recognizing the dog at all. It was recognizing the background uh, of the, the snow being characteristic. So if they, you, know, if you put a poodle in the, the snow, it would say it's a husky. So it, there's, there's that kind of thing. You really need to, to distinguish what you're trying to recognize and have data for all of it. Uh, the other very interesting scenario was uh, they had a human object detector that was trained you know, on lots of different humans uh, walking around. But then when they mounted the camera in the ceiling looking down, they couldn't recognize humans from, from above. Another, another uh, shiny head blinding the camera situation. But uh, it, it was they, because they didn't train from that angle, it couldn't recognize humans. So it's really, if you take a human and they say, okay, here's a person, they can spatially generalize within, in their mind what that human might look at like from the pose that they're currently looking at and disambiguate it. But current neural network technologies don't have that internal uh, 3D model of the world to, to you know, rotate and scale things arbitrarily to recognize them. So you have to make sure when you train the technology, you have all of those uh, variance factors uh, sampled. And some of them you can generate synthetically some of them you have to actually have their real world pictures for. So do you think the, the solution is more, more training, more, more variables in the training set, or, you know, or this will, oh, what do you think will? No, I, I think this current level of technology has its limits that are inherent and doesn't matter how much data you throw at, it's not going to build a, a 3D model of the world. I think there's a, a need for abstraction layers uh, above what the current convolutional neural networks uh, do in, in the feature space up into a modeling space that, that allows this kind of arbitrary matching to go on like like humans do. So uh, I don't I, I don't think we're there with the technology. I think there'll be another more advances in technology and and uh, structural structures that will allow that kind of capability. But we're not there yet. So actually, with respect to the market segments, Dale, um, so if you could, things that we know, video surveillance, right? So th that's one piece of it. And yep. the, it has the automated driving piece that you talked about already. And then you also have this, uh, uh, you know, in-care, patient care, remote care uh, kind of situations. Uh, and then you also have a, in the post, uh, COVID, post-COVID, uh, a lot of uh, safety-related, uh, whether people are wearing, you know, protected equipment or not, uh, them, uh, doing social distancing, all of these uh, segments are emerging, or, which are ripe for a video AI, it, it could be useful. So the question here is, what are the segments that you're seeing more opportunities where startups or companies are immediately able to you know, implement and deploy 
and get better ROI and which areas are lagging? Okay, well, let's start with the ones that uh, I think we don't have the technology for yet. Um, although Elon Musk might argue with you is uh, using using vision to, for autonomous vehicles hmm. um, in a in a generalized uh, you know open open environment roads under all weather conditions. Uh, that's a very challenging problem, which I don't think is solved by. No, but, sorry for interrupting, Dale, but it's like, a, it's, for example, Teslas of the world, and so people are doing automotive driving. So how are they able to solve that puzzle? Uh, is it a very narrow scope that there's a narrow scope they're solving? Yeah, the, the narrow scope of you know a sunny day in in Arizona, keeping the car between the lines and making good turns uh, you know, on the roads, I think is a solved problem. Hmm. Um, I grew up in Chicago, and uh, I was back there last last Thanksgiving, and there was a blizzard that the snow actually covered up the the stoplights. You couldn't see what the light was going going uh, red, green, or yellow, um, and you had to navigate in that particular environment. And that uh, that's that's not just a vision problem; that's an intelligence problem. But you know, <laughs> there's a, it also covered up all the the markers on the road. You had to sort of guess where the where the edge of the road was and, and based on your knowledge of where the trees were, how far they were away from the road. So a lot of inferred knowledge there that isn't solved just by recognizing the lines on the road. So I'm, I'm not optimistic uh, that I'd want to be in a self-driving car in a snowstorm in Chicago anytime soon. Yeah, okay. yeah you kind of put that here, that goes off to my um, I mean, I never considered buying a self-driving car, but, um, you know, it's it's just becoming a little bit more commonplace. Obviously, it just talked about. Yeah, I mean, Uber's been driving around Arizona in the you know, in normal conditions uh, for for a while now and uh, very, very little problems that they're reporting. I'm not sure they're reporting everything, but uh, but the generalized problem that humans can solve, uh, you know, driving in India or driving in uh, some other place in the world where the, the traffic is, is even more complex than here uh, is a challenge. Okay, so that's one area you said it's a challenge. So which which ones have more traction? Which areas? Yeah, you mentioned some of them. I think you know security surveillance um, is well accepted that you know AI can reduce the cognitive load of, of monitoring security cameras so that one one person can manage hundreds of, of AI uh, detected surveillance systems. Uh, there are, you know, AI systems counting people going in and out of retail stores. So very constrained problems where there's a very simplistic interpretation that that you control you know, internal variables, you, know, you control the lighting, you control the placement, uh, and you control what you're you have good model for everything that you're trying to detect. Those very narrowly defined problems are being solved left and right. It's as you get more, more and more general, less control over lighting, less control over environment, less constrained on, on what you're actually trying to, to detect that things get really challenging. And uh, you know, the other challenging one that I was gonna say besides self-driving cars is just general video understanding. So like YouTube, they have a huge economic uh, incentive to have general video understanding for their, their own advertising and revenue purposes, but uh, last I heard, they're not even close to, to coming up with a generalized solution to, to being able to you know, understand the activities and, and objects that are in every uploaded YouTube video. 
So can you continue that example a bit more? Like how, what benefit would YouTube have if they actually implemented something smart? Would it be, you know, monitoring the videos or like what would be the use case for that? Yeah, well, I can say what they have implemented. They've, they've implemented some, uh, what I consider uh, content monitoring functions where they're looking for uh, sex or violence that, that would be inappropriate for, for certain advertisers. Uh, to, to put their content next to you so that they do actually have detectors that, that work at that level, but they really don't have it working to the level of, you know, Ramesh hit the ball uh, out into left field and he's, he's running the first base. That, that kind of thing isn't, isn't being done yet. Hmm. So, okay, so good. So we covered uh, the ground in the market segments, we covered the ground in technology, and then we covered your scope uh, with respect to, uh, your aviate.ai, the community that you're building, um, as apart from the iCloud, the work that you do. So what are you uh, trying to accomplish as this aviate AI? What is the community made up of? Yeah, the community is made up of innovators using AI and video from, from around the world in a variety of markets, everything from you know, content moderation, automatic video editing to you know, self-driving vehicles, which uh, we, we do have representation there. We also have VCs and analysts in, in the video AI ecosystem that participate in. So it's a business community. We focus on uh, business development, ecosystem development, and, and market development to, to help these entrepreneurs and innovators uh, you know, be successful and get to market faster. Is there any criteria for people to join the business community and um i mean i'm curious to to learn more about the actual just, just an interest in the video ai market from any part, point in the ecosystem so we have people that are doing chips uh, all the way up to to people uh deploying services and applications in, in real world environments so yeah, i think the biggest question is is it open for uh, people or is it a selective admission or what is it we do expect people that are, are are in the industry. So um, we do we do accept some students if they're studying uh, visual AI disciplines or something like that where it's relevant. But in general, uh, we're looking for people in the industry. Oh, okay. So now we'll go segue into the next phase of the discussion. Um, so Dale here, which is your journey and. Uh, uh, I, I personally have I, I've known you from uh, my previous uh, our previous company, but before that, even you, know, you have a extensive in, uh, experience in the startup. Like a, you work with the TiVo, uh, you work with established companies like Nvidia and Xilinx of the world. And uh, so uh, maybe we start backwards of whichever is better for you. Right? How was your professional journey? So you, either you you can take us from the most recent. The, uh, the the earliest or the earliest to uh, recent however is the most natural for you yeah we, we can start at the beginning i actually did my master's degree in uh computer vision algorithms and neural networks um and my first job was designing missile guidance systems based on uh, you know visual visual guidance systems attract tanks and and uh, uh, defeat them but uh yeah i've been uh, in silicon valley for uh, a few decades, <laughs> uh, too, many, too many to count almost. And uh, uh, I've been in, in a dozen startups, two of which I founded myself. I've also worked at the big companies like uh, 
Motorola and Intel and Nvidia and Xilinx. So big big tech companies, but uh, uh, most most proud of uh, you know being product manager on the first sets of TiVos, bringing those to market, and product manager on the, the first Android devices, first Android smartphones uh, out of Motorola. So. Wow, my, my husband will probably thank you because he loves his Motorola phones. But <laughs> you know, I, so interesting, we talk about computer vision, that was what you studied um, as your master's, but love to hear more about what made you choose that, you know, that specific area of study, um, what, what drew you to it? Was it something that in your childhood or like, I'm just curious about why you chose this path? Yeah, I guess, you know, from, from my uh, youngest memories, uh, I, I've been a techie. My father was an electrical engineer, and uh, you know, he used to take us to Cape Canaveral for rocket launches, and I got into that. And thought, you know, I, my my first writings that I, my mom saved were all about uh, you know flying in spaceships and stuff like that. So yeah, I, I'm I'm pretty hardcore geek uh, at heart. Well, so so Dale, I'll ask a little bit of a tough question here. So a lot of people going to startups thinking that you know that's it. So they will make it, and then uh, um, uh, the life is made. And you've gone through multiple startups. Like looks like you were at the beginning of the T word days as well. Yep. So what is it experience like? You join a startup thinking that it's going to you know make up, and then then the startup will go through a trough, and then uh, people may get disillusioned. I'm not saying every startup is like. What has been your journey like, uh, your personal journey as you were going through the ups and downs of the startups? Yeah, so the, I mean, the early startups that I were involved in were all VC-backed, you know, big money, uh, big big investors, NEA and Benchmark and Sequoia and all those guys. Um, but the world has changed significantly since those. I mean, my most recent startup was bootstrapped and the cost of entry for an entrepreneur is has dropped dramatically. It's really an amazing time to be an entrepreneur. Uh, the, the, the amount of capital required to start software and service companies with the, you know, go out and rent some time on that AWS and you don't have to set up data centers or anything. It, it's all uh, pay as you go. And, and even AWS will, will give you, give it away free until you're, uh, you're off the ground. So it's a great time to, to uh, be an entrepreneur. And uh, like I said, as you mentioned, it, it's quite common, although not uh, not always, but it's common that uh, you you go into a startup with a premise and your customer educates you uh, and pivots you to, to more lucrative uh, versions of that premise. Um, and a famous famous uh, story with TiVo. Uh, when I joined TiVo, uh, the the CTO. Uh, who, who developed the original product concept had envisioned this computer sitting off in the closet that was a video server uh, for the home and, and allowed you to watch video on demand stuff uh, from a, a video server in the closet. And uh, you know, as we as we did the consumer research and, and uh, market feedback, uh, we pivoted into something that was more akin and lookalike to their VCR to 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 make it marketable and deployable. So. That was a, and at the time it was originally started as Teleworld, and we rebranded it to TiVo to to align with the television uh, paradigm. So, but yeah, it's quite common. Your your customer that actually wants to pay you is the one who educates you. You may have uh, great technology and uh, 
a, a disruptive experience, uh, but you really need to align with how the market wants to accept it. So, so Dale, since, I mean, you, you worked in, as, as Ramesh said, in startups and also established companies. Um, I mean, could you sort of compare uh, and contrast the level of innovation that is at different types of companies? Uh, I mean, I'm gonna guess there is more innovation opportunities at startups, um, but I could be wrong. So I'd love to hear more about the culture, the innovation culture at these types of, um, you know, startup <laughs> startup but also maybe the size of the company is is also a factor or yeah i mean by definition startups uh, are are bigger risk takers and i think that's i've been in the big companies and uh big companies have these little you know people their full-time job is to be an antivirus to to innovation so it's really hard to innovate within within a big company um for example motorola my my group that did the the Android, the first Android smartphone in Motorola, we had to hide, you know, the, the headquarters were off in Chicago. We had to hide off in Sunnyvale in this, this skunk works building that they didn't know about because the people that found out about it internally to Motorola, they had their own competing operating system and competing environment that, that treated us as a virus and a, and a disease because we were competing with them. So it's that kind of stuff that goes on in big corporations. Wow, even within the same company. Yeah, yeah. We were we were innovating, we were making a new operating system with Google and going to market with these phones. So the, the mainstream Motorola, we, we had to, you know, basically hide from them, otherwise it would have killed us. So then what are the key things that you're walking away with each of these engagements? Um, it's like successful companies, uh, some are not not su successful, but you probably are taking something with you from each of the engagements into uh, your next engagement and how can you contribute and make the other company more successful. So is it about, I mean, we, you talked a little bit about uh, the mindset, uh, but about how about the ecosystem development, any of those things that uh, are obvious to you that a good companies should be doing based on the learnings of the failed ones? Yeah, particularly for tech companies, and this is, you know, amplified dramatically with tech companies it's your ecosystem that that makes you successful right you can you can have a disruptive cog in in the machine but if all the other components of the machine aren't aligned with you uh, you'll never make it done so that that is, is there an example was a tivo considered a good ecosystem example or, or not having enough ecosystem example um so the TiVo ecosystem that, that I, I worked on when I was there uh, was we had a, a great product, but we had to bolt into the distribution ecosystem. So I partnered with Philips. I partnered with Sony uh, where they took Philips and Sony branded product into the channel for distribution through through consumer electronics distributors so that consumers could get it. Otherwise, there wasn't a real, you know, you couldn't go to Amazon.com and order stuff. It was you had to align with those distributors. and. Sony and Philips were the big names for that. So we aligned with them and we aligned with some vendors that had interesting technology in the back end that gave our, our product performance. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you liked what you heard today and would like to hear more, please subscribe to our podcast on your favorite player like iTunes and Spotify. And please do rate our podcast. Also, 
please go to our website, www.datatransformerspodcast.com for more episodes, blogs, and information on our speakers. Thank you.